We ask you right now, Lord God, to speak to us through your word. I, am, I pray that I am merely a vessel here, that people don't hear me speak, but they hear your word speak, and that we can all be blessed by it. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Happy Memorial Day, Memorial Day weekend. My name is Alec. Uh, I'm really blessed to be able to speak here occasionally. We are in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. And today we're discussing Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. And uh, it didn't even really occur to me until this morning that, you know what, we're talking about somebody who, who died and we benefited from that death. Uh, Memorial Day weekend. So Stephen's introduction into the annals of Christian history uh, happens like it was described a little bit last week when he's elected to a position of leadership, an administrative position in the new church. And at that time, the people who elected him to this position of leadership described him as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So this guy who is an administrator apparently uh, is, is pretty skilled at that, but he's also a skilled evangelist because Stephen is not just somebody who is respected by these people. He's somebody who gains respect where he goes because he speaks about the Messiah with power. He isn't somebody who just preaches to the choir. He goes into the Greek-speaking synagogue because he's a Greek-speaking Jew, a Hellenistic Jew. And he goes into the synagogues, and the thing is, is that when they... Um, experience Stephen, they are uh, surprised. The man's full, full of grace, he's full of power, and this is where he ends up performing some great wonders and signs. But the people that he argues with about the messiahship of Jesus are unable to cope with him, and unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He's a powerful speaker, and he really, really knows his stuff. So, uh, the man goes and when people hear him speak, they are offended because they don't see that Jesus is the Messiah. And so since they don't like what he's saying and they can't c compete with him with valid points, well, their alternative then is to cheat. If you can't win within the rules, then you make up a false narrative. So they accuse this man of Offending the four biggies in Israel. Number one is God. Number two is Moses. Number three is the temple. And number four is the law. And so they stir up dissension and they drag him in front of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of Israel and which is basically like the Supreme Court. And he is now in what we would look at as maybe the classic courtroom drama. Okay? The characters are introduced. Here are the people who have power. Here's the man who's been accused. The indictment is in place. And now we have the trumped-up charges read. And then it's like the spotlight turns into the direction of Stephen, and something happens. His face kind of becomes illuminated, and he resembles the face of an angel. And now he's really got the attention of the council of 70 men and all the spectators in the area. And at this time, everybody's wondering, what is this man going to say? <clears throat> the 
to save his neck. He is facing the death penalty for blaspheming the important things of Israel, the sacred things of Israel. Well, Stephen then begins a rebuttal of the charges, yes, but he also shares that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and he does it in power. So Stephen starts by being respectful of the audience and respectful of the father of Israel, Abraham. But then he goes into kind of a history lesson, a review of the Old Testament. And he starts by saying, the revered patriarch Joseph. You know, his brothers, the people who we revere as the leaders of the original tribes of Israel, they did not recognize that Joseph was chosen by God to do great things. And they rejected him. In fact, they left him for dead. They sold him to be a slave. And yet, God had sent Joseph to be their deliverer. A little bit later on, Moses, probably the most revered man in the history of Israel, also was not recognized by his peers, repeatedly rejected, repudiated, it says. And yet he, too, was sent to be their deliverer. Well, you see that Stephen is explaining things that are sacred to these people, and they understand them. It's all in the scriptures. But he's also pointing out that the history, in the history of Israel, the leaders and the people have repeatedly made large mistakes and missed out on what God was doing. It goes further. He talks about the blasphemous practices of the very highest level in Israel. When they're in the desert, the first priest, Aaron, blasphemes God by creating a golden calf and worshiping it at the direction of the people that he was supposed to be leading. And then after that, Stephen points out, yeah, you've accused me of blaspheming the temple, but, you know, I think that you're missing the point with the temple. The temple is a representative of God on earth. God is not limited by this building. You're, you're missing out potentially on what God is doing now by putting all your focus on the historic building that, yes, we revere it, but God is so much bigger than this building. So he has, with everyone's attention, rebutted the charges against him, and now the courtroom drama's music changes. And this is where he turns the tables on them. And the accused is now becoming the accuser. As it says in uh, chapter 7, verse 51, this is what he says. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? You could almost hear him say, you can't handle the truth. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law from angels but have not obeyed it. The council loses it. They are ready to seize. They are ready to destroy. They feel like they have a, a real good reason to just take a pound of flesh out of this guy. But then God steals the scene. Jesus shows up. As we read in verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw 
the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's encouraging to Christians, but it is very hard to hear <laughs> for, those of you who have, for, for those of them who have not accepted Jesus. Now they rush him, and they are ready to destroy. And you can imagine them kind of grabbing him by the back of his clothes and maybe by his hair and just rushing him right out of the building and out of the, city, the, the, the gates of the city and throwing them down and just picking up the closest rock and immediately saying, that's it, dude, you're done. And they're stoning Stephen to death. But while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, <coughs> Lord Jesus, <coughs> receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Roll and credits. It's quite a story. You know, Stephen wasn't killed because he was a Christian. Stephen was killed because he was a passionate evangelist and an informed apologist. If you're not familiar with that term apologist, the root word is apologia. That's a Greek term for a reason or an answer. He is somebody who had an informed answer for the faith that he had. Stephen was killed because his proclamation of Jesus Christ was so potent that his enemies felt compelled to silence him, snuff him out. Don't you want to be so potent for Jesus Christ that the evil one feels compelled to silence you? The question we want to ask today is what made Stephen such a potent witness for Jesus? I see four major factors that made Stephen a potent witness for Jesus Christ. The first one is, is that he knew the Bible. Stephen, under intense pressure, imagine being him, under intense pressure, is able to recite a totally accurate timeline of the Old Testament, quote entire passages of Scripture, in context, and therefore, he's doing it in power. If you don't have it in context, then you don't really have any power behind you. And this is impressive. For example, he is accused of blaspheming the temple. And so he uses scripture to point out to them, you know, you are kind of overemphasizing the temple a bit. This is what the Lord says. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things, and so they came into being? You can just imagine at that point that the, the council is starting to say, you know what, I'm, that, that, he's touching on some sensitivities here. He's kind of, I'm not, I'm not liking what he's saying because it forces me to examine my own heart. And that's true, because as we're told in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, 
what he's saying is more powerful than a double-edged sword. And it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, even to the teachers of the law who were experts in the Bible. It penetrates even joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. When we use the Bible and, and are able to articulate it, it's like having armor-piercing rounds in our chamber, very powerful weapons in our arsenal. We might be able to make a point using human wisdom, and it can have a certain effect. But when we use Scripture, and particularly the words of, let's say, like quoting Jesus, it has a multiplying effect. And it's the kind of thing that can be what finally gets through the spiritual fog in someone's mind and can be the thing that finally breaks through hardened human hearts. So Stephen knew the Bible. The next thing that I see, a major factor of why he was a potent witness of Jesus Christ, is that he knew his theology. You see, the early Christians and the people who killed Stephen had the exact same Bible. There was no New Testament. They had the exact same scriptures in their hands, and they had the exact same scriptures in their hearts. They were revered. The difference is, is how they interpreted the text. <sighs> Jesus himself made it clear that what's important is what you see the scriptures say about himself. Jesus is quoted in John 5, 39, and he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them that you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. In essence, what he's saying is, you spend all your time revering this word, and I am what the word is testifying of. Think about this. Jesus' appearance to and ultimately the comforting of Stephen is the endorsement of the correct theology of who the Messiah is. None of the council of the Sanhedrin never got to experience Jesus' face appearing in the sky. But Jesus says, I, he's got it right. So he knew the Bible and he knew his theology. The third thing is that he knew his audience. His words were strategically chosen for who he was speaking to. We didn't get into it in the first pass-through of the story, but he does a really good job of everything that he says. He starts off by honoring those who are present, his fathers and his peers alike, brethren. He's not going to say anything offensive right off the bat. Then he talks about how we have this in common. We, I revere the God of Israel, who is the God of glory. And everybody immediately says, okay, check off the box. He shows respect for the God of glory. Then he talks about Abraham, and he says, you know, this is our father, and God made great promises to him, and we are the ancestors, and we were the heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham. We're all in this together. And what he's doing is he is gaining a rapport with his audience so that they, one, respect him, and two, they're willing to listen to him. How do we know this? Because he speaks for an entire chapter without being interrupted. He has them eating out of his hands. They're following every word. They're thinking about the theology behind every sentence. And that's where he creates his opportunity. If it was just him speaking, 
and rambling on. He, and, he, and he never took advantage of the fact, it would have been really sad if he never took advantage of the fact that now I've got them. They're no longer looking at me as a blasphemer. They're thinking these charges might be trumped up. They're thinking that this is maybe, you know, a waste of everyone's time to have a trial. But he doesn't stop there. He uses that opportunity to share the gospel. And that's really, really brilliant. We need to remember that Paul instructs us in Ephesians uh, 4.15 that when we have an opportunity to share the faith, we are to teach them the truth in love. You don't want to go around hitting people over the head with the Bible and then telling them that they're sinners and then, you know, being confrontational. What you want to do is you want to love them. You want to develop a relationship with them. You want to have an opportunity to share with them your heart. That makes Jesus more palatable. You might not be able to completely help somebody convert, but you will have planted a seed that is a positive thing in their heart for maybe later. And maybe what you're doing is you're just sharing with them right then, and it is going to be uh, something that you can build on later. But we want to teach them the truth in love. So he knew the Bible, he knew his theology, he knew his audience. And covering it all is that he believed it with all of his heart. Remember, the great commandment is that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind. Stephen clearly did that. He trusted Jesus with all of his heart. He could have, I mean, this man knew the law, right? And he knew the power of the Sanhedrin, and he knew that the penalty for what he was saying if he was uh, found guilty was death. So he knew the cost, he knew the stakes. But he believed in all of his heart that Jesus was going to protect him. And that made me wonder, did this guy, was, was he in earshot when Jesus was quoted in, in Luke? When Jesus said in his ministry, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So he did the work. He knew the scriptures. He knew his theology. He knew his audience. And then he trusted Jesus to do the rest. He trusted the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to be put in front of a council of 70 people who have the authority to kill us and have to defend theology. But there are people in, in the world right now who, who do face death when they are uh, asked to either deny or promote Jesus. But let's say for us, it's just simply being on an airplane and having a conversation with a stranger. We want to be able to communicate to them. And so we want to be able to start flexing our spiritual muscles and know our areas of weakness, address those areas of weakness, and start building so that we do know our scripture, or we do know our theology, or we can cater our conversation to the specifics of that person who's in our audience. Now, here's the one thing that I really want you to have a takeaway from. It's not in your notes, just kind of remember this. Each of us can increase our potential witness of Jesus Christ with intentionality and the Holy Spirit. We do some work, God takes over. Now, um, at the end of my message, I'm going to be uh, sharing with you some resources that are available if you want to know more about the Bible, you want to get some specific teaching on theology. 
um, etc. But before I do that, I want to bring all this together with a modern example. I want to bring it on home. Uh, got a picture here. This is uh, me with a gentleman named Nabil Qureshi. And Nabil Qureshi is a respected historian. He is an um, award-winning author. He is a medical doctor. And he's actually currently attending um, Oxford University in England, pursuing yet another doctorate. So he's just an absolutely brilliant person. And he's like three years younger than me. It's depressing. But anyway, uh, Nabil comes from a long line of Muslim missionaries. He was raised in America to be an ambassador for Islam by his family. And he took to it like a moth to a flame, zealous for Islam, zealous for Allah. And he not only was an ardent defender of the faith, but he was an ardent promoter of the faith. In fact, one of his favorite things to do in his younger years was to seek out Christians and confront them and embarrass them, asking them questions that he knew they couldn't answer about the resurrection and the Trinity, etc. And that was something that he got great joy in. He felt very smug in his knowledge and the Christians' lack thereof. Most of the people who he encountered who claimed Christ could not defend Christ. Could not use the scriptures, could not use history, could not use theology, could not use reason and logic, just could not flat out explain the basics of their faith. Can you? That was the challenge that a gentleman named David Wood faced. David Wood had been an atheist, and then he became a follower of Christ. And five years later, he goes to Old Dominion University, and he meets his new drama, debate, and forensics teammate, a well-spoken Muslim named Nabil Qureshi. And <clears throat> they strike up a great friendship quickly. They have to travel together for a debate competition, so they're sharing the same hotel room. And Nabil notices that David pulls out his Bible, and he sits down and he starts reading it. And this really piques Nabil's interest because Nabil loves picking on Christians and their Bible. And so Nabil can't help himself and he sees David and he says, David, are you a hardcore Christian? And David's like, I guess so. Not sure what that means, but sure. And then Nabil's like, well, you do know that the Bible's been corrupted, right? And David says, well, uh, how so? And then Nabil starts his anti-Christian spiel. And he says, well, you've got these different versions, right? You've got your King James version, you've got your New International version, you've got your ESB and your NIV, about alphabet super versions. Which one am I supposed to read? And, and by the way, did you know that some of these Bibles say things in them that other ones don't? And Christians have, over time, added in to the Bible what they wanted to say, and, frankly, what they needed to say. All right, so here's the moment of truth. You can step into that conversation and defend Christ, or you can back away and say, I don't want to lose this potential friend or teammate. Ooh, this guy's a Muslim. I don't want to get into it. This is how David handled it. 
Rather than caving into criticism, David went into a rational and pointed defense of the reliability of the Bible, using the discipline known as textual criticism. He told Nabil how the Bible was written and copied and then dispersed across the world lovingly. He shared that nowadays, with thousands of early transcripts in the original Greek and Hebrew having been located and easily available for scholars to compare, we could have great confidence in what was originally written and that whatever changes or additions that have been inserted are quickly noticed, they're criticized, and they are carefully isolated with great care. So when there is a question about authenticity, most versions of the Bible will point out the differences in the earliest manuscripts in the footnotes. There's nothing to hide. So our Bibles today are based on the original texts of the original languages, not translations of translations of translations, direct from the Greek and the Hebrew and Aramaic. And they are very, very hard to amend one way or the other. Well, Nabil was, for the first time in his life, silenced on the issue. Wow. I'd never heard any of that before. I've been living in America for 22 years. I'm a college freshman, and I just, for the first time, heard a valid defense of the Bible's reliability. He said that at that point, he began to take all this new information in, and he looked at David in a new light. Well, this was just the beginning of what was ended up being like a three-year process where they developed their friendship, spend time in class, spend time doing recreation, but also really, really examining all of the truth claims of Christianity, not just the reliability of the Bible, but also whether or not Jesus really died on the cross, whether or not he really resurrected from the dead, the doctrine of the Trinity, etc. Now, when two people are very, very zealous for their faith, there's bound to be a lot of emotion involved in that. And so there was a bank account being built up between them, an emotional bank account. But one day, it, the emotions got enough of David. He, he just couldn't take any more of him making a valid point and Nabil not being willing to concede it. Or if he conceded it, then the next day he would still be sarcastic about Jesus. And so David finally said, Nabil, look, if it were the case that Christianity were true... Would you even want to know? And Nabil answered, hesitantly but honestly, and he said, yes, there is nothing more important than being right with God. So I would want to know. But also, no. Because there is a tremendous cost to this being true for me. My family will reject me, and their community will reject them, and I don't know if I can accept that high cost. Okay, another moment of truth, right? David can say, oops, I don't want to offend your family's sensibilities. I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable spot. Or he can say what he said, which was, okay, Nabil, who wins? God or your family? And thankfully, Nabil said, God. And thankfully, David, because he was able to defend the reliability of the scriptures, because he was able to show how the scriptures had come true in history, 
because he was able to use reason and logic to describe the theology of the church, because he was able to point people to, or point Nabil to resources when he didn't have an answer that was uh, solid. But perhaps most importantly, because he did all of this with a loving heart attitude. He cared about Nabil the person. He wasn't trying to get a number on his conversion checklist. He cared about the soul and the person of Nabil. And he was willing to risk his heart. He was willing to risk humiliation. He did that for Nabil. Well, because of all these things, this work that was done by David, and because of the trust that he had in the Holy Spirit, he was able to see something amazing happen. Nabil Qureshi finally coming to the point where he had to admit that Christianity must be true. But we're not done. <laughs> Nabil now has to grapple with what he was raised in. And he believed it so firmly and he fought for it so much that he had to spend another whole year agonizing, which is the truth. Christianity can't be explained away. And so for another year, he agonized over the truth claims of Islam. And then he came to the gut-wrenching conclusion that Islam must be a man-made religion and therefore a false hope. And so in 2005, Nabil, for the very first time in his life, submitted not to Allah, but to the living God. Nabil no longer uh, practices medicine. Nabil has gone on to uh, work full-time in apologetics. Uh, he wrote a book and, uh, telling his story. And uh, the story is called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. This was just awarded the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association Best Nonfiction Book of 2015. It is fascinating. You will learn about Christianity in this book. And you will learn about Islam in this book. And you need to know both. Um, Nabil was right about the high cost of accepting Christ and now being a promoter of Christ. The way that he described his father's reaction was that his father said, this is an outright betrayal of my own, from my own son, and it hurts as though my back has just been ripped out of my spine. There's a high price to pay. And in the end, Nabil said, it's all worth it because it's not about me. It's about all those people who don't know Jesus. It's about all those billions of Muslims who don't know the truth. Nabil uses his ministry position now to go and debate the, the leading Muslim scholars. And you can bet that a lot of people in the audience are hearing the gospel for the very first times in their lives. He points out the reliability. He, 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 he encourages the audience to objectively examine the truth claims of each faith, whether that's the origination and the preservation of their sacred scriptures, the controversial points in each faith's history, 
or if it's simply the moral examples that were lived out by each faith's founder. But it is an amazing thing, I think, for David Wood to see that his witness, his apologia, helped not just Nabil have a transition in his life where he's accepted Christ and we know that he's going to be his brother in heaven forever, but Nabil could be the next Billy Graham having a tremendous impact on the world. I went, when, I met, when, I met, when I met Nabil, it was at the Alaska State uh, Governor's Prayer Breakfast. He came up with Ravi, and I got to meet them both, and I, I walked up to Ravi, and I shook his hand, and I said, I love you, sir. And then I said, I'm excited about your new hire, Nabil. I think he's Ravi 2.0. He got a kick out of that. One of them is... Uh, from Pakistan, and the other one is from India. And so these two guys, a Hindu and a Muslim, becoming the leading apologist for Christianity is just God at work. So cool. You know, for Stephen, the original character of this message, it was not about self-preservation, was it? And for David Wood, it wasn't about avoiding hard topics or avoiding maybe some disciplined study. Those are sacrifices he was willing to make. And for Nabil, it wasn't about maintaining the status quo and family relations. It was about binding up the brokenhearted and setting the captives free and being used by God, putting his energy towards something that blesses others. I'll grant you that Stephen, David Wood, and Nabil Qureshi are pretty extreme examples, but don't, don't be intimidated by them. Don't say, I can't do that. That's for somebody who's, you know, more brilliant than me or whatever. Be inspired by them. You're not going to become an expert overnight, but each one of us has particular areas that we can work on to build the strength in our own spiritual muscles, whether that's Scripture whether it's theology. Um, there's some resources I want to point out to you. If you have questions about the Bible, first of all, if, if anyone here doesn't own a Bible, there are Bibles dispersed throughout the room. Grab one and take it home. And I'll pay the church for it. You need to have a Bible. And if you don't like reading the, the text and carrying on the book and maybe even more tech savvy, then download the free Clearwater Church app it has the Bible in it. You can have any version that you want, by the way. And then reading plans are, it's dumbed down. It's not that difficult. Cut out 20 minutes of the day, watch fewer sitcoms, read the Bible. Now, the book, uh, Read the Bible for a Change, will help you to find new ways of studying it, new ways of getting into it, so that you're not just starting at the beginning and go left to right, and then you end up losing momentum. It can get you ways that are excited about your own heart, stories, characters, etc. By Ray Lubeck, he's a great guy who was my wife's professor at Multnomah University. The next book is short, but it's powerful. It's called God Wrote a Book, and that's about the reliability of the scriptures, basically a longer version of what David said to Nabil. That really helped me say, you know what, I, just, I am 100% in. I believe in the reliability of the scriptures. Like I said, the Clearwater Church app is a thing for you to use. And then this one's really exciting. Um, R.C. Sproul is a very well-respected Christian preacher, author, apologist. 
and he wrote a crucial question series first for his church and then then for a larger audience and that's basically answering 20 of the main questions or biggest questions that people have about Christianity whether that's what is the trinity you know how can i believe in the resurrection etc he has made those available for free on iTunes. So you can go to iTunes, type in R.C. Sproul, and you can download these little booklets. Like, you know, the Trinity one's only 50 pages long, but it's really helpful in getting some sound theology. Uh, now, maybe you are here by yourself or you don't know anyone in this church yet and you are afraid of the idea of trying to do, do this alone, which is not what God intended. God intended for us to do church together. You want to go on this journey with somebody, join one of our journey groups. There's, I think, 12 that already exist. There's probably going to be more ones in the fall. But this will give you an opportunity to get into the Word, get into the Word with people. And there's a whole lot of value in you doing some work and having some healthy intramural debate with people who are of the same faith, accepting the power of the Holy Spirit, and then going out into the world and doing it. I'm going to close today with an instruction from the Apostle Peter. Uh, this is coming out of his letter, 1 Peter 3, 15. And he says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the example of Stephen. Thank you for his heart. Thank you for his trust in the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the time that he put in to become familiar with your word so that he could use it as a double-edged sword. May we be inspired by his example. May we be inspired by the modern example of David Wood and Nabil Qureshi, stepping out of their comfort zones because it's not about them. It's not about us. It's about a lost world needing Jesus. Please, Lord God, let today be the day that somebody picks up the Bible for the first time. Or let today be the day that they take a step forward in faith to build a spiritual muscle and be used by you in power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.